The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we usually talk about the differences between us. But my guest this week is very much a friend like me. We have maybe too much in common. He is Dan Dresner, a pro- oh, I should say Daniel W. Dresner, a <laughs> professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and a contributor to The Washington Post. Also, you are the father of former toddlers, which is the area of expertise for this particular book. That is correct. The book being called uh, The Toddler-in-Chief, What Donald Trump Tells Us About the Modern Presidency. And I'm super excited to talk to you in part because uh, welcome to South by Southwest, everyone. (laughs) 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 If If you've always wanted to go to South by Southwest, welcome to a panel that was supposed to happen at South by Southwest. I actually am wearing my cowboy boots just in honor of the occasion. Oh, that's, that's touching. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am wearing a typical academic sweater vest. So, you know, I'm, I'm leaning into my stereotype. That's okay. It would, be, it would have been a, a great look for the panel. Like, I am a native Texan and you're a native academic, let's say. Um, so let's talk about the book. Yeah. So people have probably heard of the Twitter thread that you started, even if they have not yet heard much about the book. Uh, tell us about this Twitter thread. Right. So to to put the Twitter thread in context, you have to go all the way back to April of 2017. And I recognize that time moves differently in the age of Trump. So that seems like 4,000 years ago. But, but if you go back to then, if you recall, when Trump was first president, I, I there was sort of this desperate desire on the part of some media commentators to, for lack of a way of putting it, normalize Trump mm-hmm. in the sense of the belief that that rather than Trump reshaping the presidency, the presidency would constrain Trump. Um, and there were a whole variety of arguments out there about the ways that Trump would grow into the presidency. And in the first couple of months, Trump did a few things that, to be fair, were seen as conventionally presidential. He gave a, address, a joint address to Congress that was generally well-received. Um, he had a sober explanation for why he had launched missile strikes into Syria. And so you had very responsible people, very serious people like Fareed Zakaria or Van Jones saying, this was the day Donald Trump mm-hmm. became president, or this was the day that Trump grew into the presidency. And I understand why they said that, um, because we all wanted Trump to grow into the presidency. And the problem is, you began to see stories in the press, and they'd been there the whole time, but, but beginning in late April, I noticed a story uh, in the press uh, by Ashley Parker and Robert Costa of my colleagues at The Post, describing what Trump was like um, in the White House. And there was this quote from an anonymous official saying, you know, essentially how he was addicted to television and how he couldn't stop watching cable news. And he said, you know, once he goes upstairs to the East Wing, there's no controlling him. And the thing that struck me was that this is exactly the way you would describe a child that you you know that was completely beyond your control. <laughs> and so I tweeted something along the lines of, "I'll believe that Trump is growing into the presidency when his staff stops talking about him like a toddler." Um, and I, at the time I did it, I really didn't think you know it was just a, a snark aside. I, I didn't think much more of it. And the problem was is that about a couple of days later, there was another story in Politico that had that exact same sort of feel to it, where, again, an anonymous White House staffer is describing Trump the way you would describe 
a petulant three-year-old. Um, and so I decided, well, okay, I should thread this tweet just to show it's a theme. And then a couple days later, there was an, another story, I think, in Axios that, that literally said that Trump staffers feel like they're babysitters. Um, and so I, I realized this was a thing. So I just basically said, OK, I'll just keep doing this as a threaded tweet. Um, didn't really think much more about it. And then once they started looking for these things, and again, part of the key here is that it's not that Trump's critics call him a toddler. I mean, they do that. Nancy Pelosi, you know, has described Trump having a temper tantrum and has also talked to the New York Times about how he has, you know, doesn't know a lot as president and how he has a short attention span. Um, but we would expect his partisan critics to, to levy this, uh, uh, this kind of attack on him. And it's not that mainstream media commentators do this easier. They do that all the time. But if you're a Trump supporter, it would be understandable if you dismiss those things. You would dismiss Democrats as, of course, just partisan sniping, and you would strip the mainstream media as just the mainstream media reacting against a president who labels them the enemy of the people. What was striking to me when I started developing this thread was, in order to add to the thread, it had to be a reputable <laughs> mainstream media source. What's, what's, what is it? I'm just laughing because, like, yes, oh, okay. I, I, I think it's important to point out that you have this uh, criteria. Yeah, that, no, 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 this that, is a, that, that these are his staff and, like you're saying, credible media source. Right. And uh, they, it's still t clearly toddler talk. Yes. So, in other words, to get into this thread, it's got to be a mainstream media source. And it has to be someone who is a White House or a, a Trump administration staffer or subordinate or cabinet official or a friend of Trump or a GOP Hill staffer or a GOP member of Congress or an international treaty ally, someone who has a legitimate political rooting interest in Donald Trump succeeding as president, nonetheless describing him the way you describe the worst behaved toddler in history. <laughs> Um, and so I started collecting it. And, you know, with, within a, a couple months, I'd realized that uh, this wasn't going away anytime soon. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I decided to essentially make my you know, Twitter addiction as functional as possible and, and try to convert it into a book. And, and that you have. Uh, yes. And the book is more than a collection of the tweets, although that would be yes. a hilarious <laughs> book. The book is actually sort of a structural analysis. And right. that... I want to get into that structural analysis. I also want to know at what point did you realize <laughs> that that was there, that this is not just like snarking about the president, but that there is something to to dig out of mm -hmm. all, all of that. So this was the, I, I, this is what I would describe as the stone soup of books in that, <laughs> you know, that parable about, you know, when two two people come into a village and say, I'm going to make stone soup and they convince everyone to sort of chip in something and they have a you know great soup, even though they didn't do anything. Um, so I, you know, foolishly thought, oh, this will be an easy book to write. I'll just write an introduction <laughs> and I'll write a conclusion. It'll just be a string set of tweets in between. There's good, I don't have to do anything else. And I sat down and I started writing. And next thing I knew, there were 70,000 words. <laughs> OK, <laughs> I wish that sounds great to me. But um, I, I guess you're you, you you have a different attitude towards prolixity uh, uh, than I do. I felt a little guilty about that, you know, but um, but essentially what I realized, as you say, is that I, I'm making two arguments in this book. And, and one is. They're both serious, but one is is slightly funny and one is is a little more complex. The funny argument is that really I do think that the way in which all of these Trump supporters describe Trump nonetheless as a toddler is, is just inescapable. And once you start looking for it, you can't escape it. As I said, I started this tweet or I started this this thread uh, in April of, of 2017. I am now at I just added 
I believe, hold on, let me, let me check. Um, I want to make sure I have the count right. Uh, yes, the 1,265th wow. uh, addition to this thread. This is over a little more, no, less than three years. Um, so it's rather alarming. And you also do break down the, the tweets into what, what kinds of toddler behavior he's describing. Right. You having, you know, been a parent of toddlers, <laughs> uh, knowing more than I do. Uh, and and let's just quickly run through what that criteria was for what are these specific traits that the tweets point to, and then we'll talk about how Trump embodies each of them. How about that? Right. That sounds good. So the book is divided, you're correct, into various uh, toddler traits. And so, you know, we start with temper tantrums. Um, toddlers are notoriously short-tempered. Uh, there is short attention span. Um, which is, say, Trump's ability to focus uh, on anything beyond just a minute uh, is extremely uh, uh, difficult. Uh, we have poor impulse control, uh, oppositional behavior, um, the ways in which uh, Trump, like many toddlers, if, if adults tell him to do something, he will do the exact opposite of it. Um, knowledge deficits, much like you know, two-year-olds, there is a lot about the world that Trump does not know. <laughs> um, and so we just have to cope with that. Uh, you know, I mean, literally, we're talking about this this week in which, you know, Trump said, who knew that, that so many people died from influenza when his grandfather died from influenza, mm -hmm. if I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, too much screen time. This is a big problem. This isn't a trait so much, but this is rather, you know, the parenting isn't really good. Um, and then there are a few other sort of smaller things. Uh, Trump's aversion to new foods. Um, <laughs> his, uh, you know, his, much like toddlers, you know, yeah. his, uh, his desire to, you know, uh, uh, use nicknames uh, for other people um, and his, the way in which he's impressed by spectacle. And um, you, know, I, you probably, it's probably not in there, but the, the, the fear of stairs, I feel like probably also kind of a toddler. <laughs> thing. That would be a toddler thing. I hadn't even thought about that. And then I, I to be fair, I have a chapter on uh, his staff called When Caregivers Give Up. So let's go through these things now. So I want to start with temper tantrums. And uh, I will read a representative uh, quote that you then tweeted. For Trump, anger serves as a way to manage staff, express his displeasure, or simply as an outlet that soothes him. And then there's some descriptions of, of how he gets mad. And then we come to the key point that makes it uh, deserve inclusion. White House officials and informal advisors say that the triggers for his temper are if he thinks someone is lying to him, if he's caught by surprise, if someone criticizes him, or if someone stops him from trying to do something or seeks to control him. And that is from a Politico story, August 16th, 2017, by Nancy Cook and Josh Dossie. He is stubborn and doesn't realize how bad this is getting. Right. So, you know, temper tantrums are one of the most obvious toddler traits that we can think of. Um, and it's to be fair, you know, for toddlers, this is understandable. This is one of the ways in which, you know, given the limited cognitive capacities they have, they they process the world uh, with Trump. Um, this is one of the biggest triggers uh, for the toddler in chief threat. There, there have been months where he just gets set off by things and cannot be controlled. Um, and, and in some ways, the, this has a, a serious effect on the way he is staffed, which is to say that and, – and in some ways, we've seen this during, for example, the development of the coronavirus 
coronavirus uh, pandemic, which is that his staffers are exceedingly reluctant to bring information to him that will cause him to lose his temper. Um, and, and understandably so, you know, people, when they are angry, make bad decisions. Um, and (laughs) you know, some people make bad decisions all the time. I I don't know why you'd keep him from getting angry. (laughs) Some people, the way I would put it is, is that as bad of a decision maker as Trump is when he's not angry, he's even worse when he's angry. Okay. I'll take that. Um, So so that's the way I would put that. And so as a result, you, you, and, and furthermore, it's not just that Trump gets angry. He clearly takes it out on whoever provide mm-hmm. he he hates the messenger. Um, so if someone tells him something uh, that is bad news, he will not necessarily like it. And what's be, what was clear from the outset was that this caused this had serious effects on the way Trump was staffed. So among other things, part of the reason that Trump. Uh, got sick of H.R. McMaster, who was his national security advisor, was that one of McMaster's jobs was to tell him about bad foreign <laughs> news. Um, and so it became this question. I think the staffers actually at one point talked about the idea of literally creating a rotating cadre of people who would give bad news to Trump so he couldn't assign or couldn't you know, take it out on, on any one individual. Um, the other thing that was the case among his staffers is that his staffers would use news stories that they knew would spin him up to get him to not do things or to get him to be angry at other staffers. You know, this White House, like all White Houses, has its various factions and and rivalries. And so there were various people who would put news stories on Trump's desk, particularly during the early days uh, when there was very little control over uh, paper flow and who got to go in and out of the Oval Office, um, that they knew would would cause Trump to spin out of control um, because they knew this would hurt their rivals. And next on your list is a short attention span, and here is the excerpt from a story. Uh, You have to understand that you're dealing with a guy whose most fundamental minute-by-minute fear in his life is boredom, said a friend of Trump's. (laughs) He's decided that the presidency is the best way in the world not to be bored. That is from Howard Feynman, The State of Donald Trump. He thinks it couldn't be better. Uh, January 30th, 2018, NBC News. Yes. So one of the constancies, and and this is one of the few times I had a direct uh, uh, source that I talked to. I talked to someone who, during the transition, uh, met with Trump, you know, Trump Tower when they were doing the vetting for um, for uh, potential cabinet and subcabinet positions. Um, and this person described, you know, this person had an hour-long meeting with Trump. And this person said it wasn't really an hour-long meeting. It was 61-minute meetings in the sense of Trump would just just do these rapid-fire questions, and there was no actual sustained conversation on any of them. Like, the, you know, the topics would be along the lines of, you know, what do you think about NATO? Um, what about the French? Uh, how big is an aircraft carrier? <laughs> or um, or asking Rince Priebus about badgers, right? Badgers, like, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel very bad that this, but what are the, what are the and, and, you know, you've written a book and so you know this, one of the, uh, but, but if you write a nonfiction book, one of the, the, the most vulnerable times you write a nonfiction book is between the time the book gets locked down and the time it actually comes out. And there's usually a couple months there. And so I felt so bad that, that my book got locked down, you know, uh, around the, the first of the year, which meant that, you know, when Philip Rucker and Carol Lanning's book uh, came out, Very Stable Genius, which is a great book, as well as, um, and I'm 
going to mangle this name, uh, Asawa and Swebsang and um, Lachlan Markey's book, uh, Sinking in the Swamp, uh, the latter one of which has the Badger anecdote in which Trump, <laughs> all, Trump, all Trump does when Reince Priebus comes into the room is ask him about badgers because, <laughs> because Wisconsin is the badger right, state. Right, Wisconsin. right. Not that Reince Priebus knew a damn thing about badgers. And what I love about that is also so, you know, as a, you know, uh, adopted home state, uh, Minnesotan, we have mm-hmm. rivals. Uh, gophers probably wouldn't have attracted to the attention, I feel like. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> Badger, for some reason, he kind of fixated on it a little bit, obviously. Um, and I, I, I said when that news came out, if that's a bit that he was doing, I, I honor that. <laughs> yes, because you have to admit, that's exactly how I feel. There are times, I will say, writing this book and researching books, this art, there are times where Trump has the more endearing traits of a toddler, which is he's legitimately at times curious about things. Badgers, Space Force, <laughs> you know, this occasion comes out, he will ask these sorts of genuine, almost, you know, can you nuke a hurricane? You know, there's another one that, that comes up. Yeah. Oh, my God, you're right. So it's kind of like the questioning time of childhood, right? Like when they when they're exactly and toddlers do ask a ton of questions, you know, now the difference is that you would want the president of the United States to be able to sit still and hear the whole answer, which is not how it works. And this is a real problem with, in terms of staffing him. And indeed, the, the best example of this, I think, in the, in the book is a long quote from Gary Cohn, where he basically says, there is no point in trying to brief the president. Um, because you might prepare for an hour-long briefing, and at 10 minutes in, he loses focus, he loses attention, he brings up some extraneous issue, like a badger, who knows, um, and you never get to the end of the briefing. And so the problem is is that you have a radically uninformed president for whom it is impossible to inform him because he simply lacks the mental discipline to be able to sit still and actually focus. Okay, and that switching from um, subject to subject actually kind of gets us to another toddler trait, uh, poor impulse control, a relevant quotation here. White House officials often refer to the shiny object phenomenon when discussing the president or those closest to him. The tendency for Trump and Kushner mainly to find themselves consumed by whatever the hot topic of the day is and not much else. From Elena Plott and Peter Nicholas, How a Forgotten White House Team Gained Power in the Trump Era, The Atlantic, June 27th, 2019. Right. So, you know, Trump, again, and this is one of the strongest commonalities with toddlers. Toddlers, of course, have poor impulse control. They're immature. Their their frontal lobes are not nearly as uh, as well-developed, so they're naturally going to sort of immediately respond to stimuli. Um, and this is what Trump does all the time. Uh, he responds to whatever is directly in front of him and and sort of lacks the capacity to think long term. And indeed, this is where we've definitely seen this in his in the pattern of his response to the coronavirus outbreak, which is Trump is obsessed with keeping the numbers of infected, the number the reported numbers of infected people down. Um, and why is he you know, obsessed with that? Because you know he doesn't want the immediate short term negative you know hit, even though. Any sort of rational calculus would tell you that over the long term, it's going to be better to have more reliable information. Um, but nonetheless, this is this is how Trump governs. He and, and furthermore, it's not just Trump has actually made this into a governing philosophy. He talks all the time about how his gut is better than anyone's brain, presumably. Um, and and to be fair, there are times where presidents you don't want presidents to deliberate too much. There are times where presidents are forced, you know 
to make a 5149 call uh, and not sort of delay to wait for more information. But there's an awful lot more times where you want the president to have, you know, a fair amount of information to deliberate on a decision and to also consult with experts and advisors. And that's not how Trump does it. And unfortunately, this is where Twitter uh, has made things far worse because Trump um, now has access to social media, he really does govern by tweet, which is he will issue a decision via Twitter without necessarily of consulting even his closest staff. So what is policymaking now um, in some ways is reverse engineering by tweet, which is Trump issues a tweet. His staff tries to figure out whether or not this is serious or not. When they do figure out it's serious, they try to reverse engineer a policy that makes it seem like Trump's tweet was what was planned all along. <laughs> Yes, and that that's working great. Yeah. And I will just pause you right there, Dan, because uh, capitalism demands that we pause. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals or keeping you from going to a therapist office? Well, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Get help on your own time, at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. There are over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states available via text, chat, phone, or video. Start communicating in under 24 hours, available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS devices. BetterHelp's licensed counselors are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, and more. And if you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. With friends like these, listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code FRIENDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash friends. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash friends. Rothy's shoes are incredibly comfortable with zero break-in period thanks to their seamless knit design. With so many chic styles to choose from, Rothy's shoes are the perfect pair for any adventure. They come in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns. They're available in a wide array of styles. They launch new colors and patterns every few weeks. They sell out constantly. I have several pairs. The pair that I like the most right now are their wool blend high tops that are perfect for the Minnesota spring, which has partially sprung like most Minnesota springs. The best thing about them, they're super comfy, they're warm, and you can throw them in the wash. Every time they need a refresh, every time you step on a puddle that used to be ice and now is slush, you can simply toss them in the washing machine. Keeping things cleaner got a whole lot easier. Rothy's owns and operates their own manufacturing workshops, and they prioritize sustainability every step of the way. And Rothy's ship directly in their own box. There is no unnecessary packaging. Check out all the amazing shoes and bags. They have new bags, which look really cool. They're available right now at rothys.com slash WFLT. That's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT. Comfort, style, and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash WFLT today. So another trait here, oppositional behavior. Aides say the quickest way to get Trump to do something is to tell him he can't or argue that it's contrary to tradition. Uh, That was a very early long Mike Allen, How Trump Thinks About Pardons in Axios, July 23rd, 2017. This one seems kind of a simple one, I have to say. Yeah, 
um, you know, it's it's not rocket science. You know, it, 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 it you tell him, look, this is the absolute right thing to do, and he says, no, I think it's the the wrong thing to do. And and to be fair to Trump, this might be the trait that there are some political psychologists that argue there might be a virtue in this, which is there is a danger sometimes in in sort of listening to the collective wisdom of, of your advisors. It's called groupthink, um, which is the notion that there's this consensus that this is a particular right way to do things, um, which might, you know, uh, conceal certain flaws in decision making. So there is occasionally a virtue in contrarian thinking. Um, the problem with Trump, though, is that his contrarian thinking is not so much on the best policy response to something. His contrarian thinking is very often boils down to facts uh, that are wrong in his mind. Um, so if you tell him that Russia intervened in the 2016 election, he refuses to believe that. Um, if you tell him that North Korea is developing nuclear weapons, um, even after he meets with Kim Jong-un in uh, Singapore, he doesn't want to believe that. And so this is particularly problematic in terms of foreign policy because very often, and, and in terms of intelligence, because his intelligence briefers keep trying to tell him, and they're not making policy judgments when they brief Trump. No intelligence official does that. They're just trying to tell him what the state of the world is. But when they tell him things about the state of the world that he knows will rebound on him in a negative political way, he simply refuses to believe it. Um, and indeed, we've seen this again uh, on display with, with Trump's response to the coronavirus outbreak, which is for the longest time he has continued to insist this is not that big of a deal. Uh, and as we are recording this, it's clearly a very big deal. And so we have a very smooth transition to the uh, next toddler trait, knowledge deficits. Uh, this is a story I had not heard before, uh, though it happened pretty pretty long ago. It is from the transition, uh, Chris Christie's uh, un, unachievable Herculean task of trying to get Trump to behave with foreign leaders uh, and trying to get him to, you know, obey protocol. Uh, and, and you're supposed to call the closest allies first, right? But— uh, mm -hmm. yes, before yes, sure. any of the calls could be made, the president of Egypt called in to the switchboard at Trump Tower and somehow got the operator to put him straight through to Trump. And Trump was like, I love the Bengals. You know that song, <laughs> Walk Like an Egyptian? <laughs> Recalled one of his advisors on the scene. And that is from a story by Michael Lewis. This guy doesn't know anything. The inside story of Trump's shambolic transition team, Guardian, September 27th, 2018. That, I, wow. <laughs> I, 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 so, yes, that shows a knowledge deficit, let's say. I mean, it's... Yes. So so there's a lot of debate in, um, you know, one of the things I tell you with the conclusion was, you know, what is the best analogy to describe Trump? Uh, you know, I say he's a toddler. But to be fair, there's competing arguments out there. There's some people who say that Trump is like a teenager. Um, and there are others who think of Trump as just a doddering old man, a dotard, uh, to, to use the word that uh, was made famous by Kim Jong-un. And, you know, these are, in the end, academic language. These are respectable, you know, opinions and reasonable people can disagree about these things. But I would argue that one of the ways in which Trump is more like a toddler is the massive oceans of knowledge that he has no clue about. Um, because even toddlers, even teenagers and, and, um, and uh, grown men know a little more about the world, I think, uh, than Trump does. Um, and the degree to which 
this requires, you know, extra briefing of Trump because he doesn't know things um, is is impressive. And again, we've seen this during the coronavirus outbreak and we've seen it on live television where Trump was asking, for example, you know, why can't you, you know, to combat the coronavirus, can't you just use like a flu vaccine, like a super version of the flu vaccine? <laughs> and you've got these doctors and sort of they're, they sounded pretty exasperated on the clip. We're like, no, no, you can't do that. Actually, it doesn't work. Yep. And also there's the there's the tell he has of a lot of people don't know when he says that whenever he says a lot of people don't know, it means I just learned. So exactly. We can really we know all the things he doesn't know almost like if you went through and just made a list of the times he said a lot of people don't know. I think you'd have a pretty good catalog of the things Trump Trump did not know. (laughs) Trump would be the worst poker player because like he would like say many people are, you know, not, not many people know that I have you know, some good cards or something. And you would be like, OK, now I know you're telling the truth, as opposed to he would be like many people are saying I have good cards and then, you know, he's bluffing. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is uh, the, the and in some ways, this is a double challenge for Trump because it's not just that he doesn't know a lot. Trump is unique among the presidents. He's the only president of the United States who had neither uh, ever served in government or in the military in any capacity whatsoever. Um, he doesn't know a lot about the world. He's not terribly curious either about the presidency as an institution. He admitted during the campaign that he had no plans on reading any presidential biographies uh, or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, this sort of ties into the other trait he has, which is a short attention span. Trump, compared to most presidents, you would need to brief more. You would need to get him up to speed. But again, because he lacks the ability to focus, he can't sit still through a normal briefing, much less a briefing where you'd actually want to like go in deep about uh, or in depth about uh, certain topics. Too much screen time. This there's, <laughs> there's an irony to having this come after a knowledge deficit because he the more he watches, the less he knows, which I guess mm-hmm. is a phenomenon that all of us are familiar with, perhaps in our, our personal lives as well. Uh, and there's lots of examples. I will just uh, go with the f- literally the first one I turn to. Aides say there was no grand strategy to the president's actions and that he got up each morning this week not knowing what he would do. Much as he <laughs> did in a... <laughs> Much as he did as a New York businessman at Trump Tower, Mr. Trump watched television, reacted to what he saw on television, and then reacted to the reactions. And that is from Mark Lander and Julie Hirschfield Davis. Another week of chaos. Trump repairs to Palm Beach. No one knows what comes next. That could be you could put that headline on any fucking story. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is. Yes, yes you could. I, I'm not even going to give people what that relates to. No date. No date. You have to guess. You can look it up online. That, it's so it's such an evergreen the thing. The, or you could buy the book, too. Um, so, yes, too much screen time for toddler Trump. So I, my favorite in that chapter is I think there's one where um, he's meeting with Lindsey Graham. And they're talking about uh, Kim Jong-un and the television is on. And Trump does this, by the way. He he has meetings with people and he also has the television on. And this sort of adds it, it fuels the short attention span because if he gets bored with the conversation, he'll just look at the TV. Um, and so there's a couple stories in there that are that are just damning on this point. Uh, but the, the one is where he's talking to, to Lindsey Graham and they're talking about Kim Jong-un. And then suddenly the television shows what looks like a North Korean missile launch. And Trump thinks this is happening in real time. And so he starts to wig out about this. And it's Lindsey Graham that has to assure the president, no, 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 that's just B-roll. That's just, that, that, no, 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 that's not happening live. That, that was just a previous 
previous pistol law. Is there uh, is there a word for the stage of of maturation where where toddlers figure out that things on screens aren't real? Because I know I remember because my parents actually told me, and I kind of remember this too that I I used to think that there were tiny people in the television, you know, like right. acting out um, the shows. Uh, is I there meant, a word for that? Because that seems like almost the problem that Trump has, like that he can't, he doesn't seem to be able to disconnect what's happening on TV and what's happening in his world. I mean, the broader way of thinking about this is, is theory of mind, essentially. Yes, it's, yes, yes. It's, when does someone recognize, oh, I'm seeing something, but my perception might be different from someone else's perception. And it's the recognition that there are other you know, people out there or other things and that they might have their own, you know, ways of looking at the world. And this is really the 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 sort of macro point I make when people push back on the notion of why are you calling him a toddler? It's because Trump's theory of mind is badly, badly malformed. Um, and he really doesn't realize that other people might have different opinions at times. And in that way, he is he is most like a toddler. Um, and, you know, as we all know, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as the World Health Organization, <laughs> recommends that, that, that under, children under the age of two should not really be watching that much television or should be using, not, not be using screens that much uh, because it, it leads to uh, cognitive delays uh, uh, in development. Um, and the other problem, of course, with Trump is not just that he watches television, but it's what television mm-hmm. he watches. Um, you know, he watches Fox News, but he doesn't watch the news portion of Fox News. <laughs> he watches he watches Fox and Friends. He watches, you know, Tucker Carlson, Lou Dobbs and and Sean Hannity. And then he'll hate watch CNN and, and MSNBC. Um, but so as a result, his, his information diet is just appalling. And, and the other thing, of course, is that because he's so set in his way, is now Trump's staff has to react to this by doing things like getting people on Judge Jeanine Pirro's show or getting them on Sean Hannity because they know they can't necessarily talk to him directly. But if they talk to him through the television, then that might actually work. And that was just a, a story in our current epidemic crisis as well with Tom Bossert, who's now not in the administration, but uh, formerly Homeland Security, trying desperately to get through to either uh, Pence or Trump to talk to them about what he knows, and which I'm guessing would be a fair amount about how to respond to an epidemic. And he couldn't get through to the White House. So he he wrote an op-ed and he went on television. (laughs) So how else are you going to get the information to the president? Like, there is no other way. So we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Uh, And people listening to this show probably didn't need to to be shown the ways in which Trump is a toddler, (laughs) but it was fun. Also, I will say this. One of the virtues of writing this book is, you know, we have we all have what I like to call is the memory hole problem, which is, you know, the news hits us so, so quickly and, and furiously that we sometimes forget, you know, things that happened even a couple months ago or certainly a couple of years ago. So if nothing else, the book is a curation to remind us that these things happened. Like, yeah, Trump actually wanted to buy Greenland. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you forget these things. Hurricane Sharpie. That's that's yes. you know start. That uh, is one of my favorites. That, yeah, same. Uh, but as we've been saying, this is more than just like a recollection of Trump tweets right. and and crises. You drew some lessons out of this, um, right? So, the, as I said, there were two points to make. One was that Trump really does act like a toddler. Um, that's the simple point to make. The less simple point to make is that this is a bigger problem than it would have been, let's say, even fifty years ago during the Cold War, because 
the presidency as an institution is far more powerful now uh, than it was back then. And so to be fair, this is very little to do with Donald Trump and everything to do with sort of tectonic shifts in American politics over the last 50 years that that there there used to be a fair number of checks and balances on executive power. Um, you know, the Constitution obviously endows the Congre- you know, the legislative and judicial branches with significant amounts of authority. Um, congressional statutes that create uh, executive departments also limit the president's power in terms of what he can do vis-a-vis some of these uh, executive uh, departments and also things like civil service reform, the Administrative Procedures Act and what have you. So there are executive branch constraints as well in theory. Uh, the courts you know, apply an additional constraint. Bureaucratic culture uh, and bureaucra- uh, bureaucratic norms also make it occasionally harder for the president to do what they want to do. And of course, there's a whole array of informal institutions uh, that we only now appreciate that, that actually matter. You know, norms that are relatively important, uh, particularly in terms of acting in times of crisis or things like the idea of a president, you know, letting the FBI director serve a full 10-year term unless they've, you know, committed egregious violations or things like that. Um, And one of the things that Trump has revealed is that all of those guardrails uh, have been worn down to a nub, Um, that congressional checks on presidential authority are much weaker than we realized, um, in no small part because Congress has been dysfunctional for so long that they've essentially abrogated powers to the president uh, over decades because the president was recognized as the last adult in Washington, D.C., and then we elected Donald Trump. Mm. So uh, we kind of set ourselves up for this, basically. Yeah. Um, yes. and, and it has to do, it sounds like I'm going to just, you know, uh, simplify maybe mm. um, your very erudite explanation there, which is that in part because of the way our electoral politics work, you didn't say this, but this is what I'm adding, uh, we've demonized uh, the congressional branch. Yes. Uh, we have uh, created a situation where everyone hates Congress, right? Like that's that's mm-hmm. the joke. Um, maybe they don't hate their own congressman, but everyone hates Congress. And uh, Congress, Congress regularly polls as far more unpopular than even this president. Right. And to a certain extent, the justice uh, branch were, was, was exempt, but we'll see what happens after this, right? Uh, but the presidency remained relatively popular and people put a lot of faith in it. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is going back to like Bush, I'm saying. Bush two, I think. Bush one, too. Mm-hmm. Reagan, yeah. right? Like yeah. people were like, OK, Congress sucks, but at least we have this strong leader. Mm-hmm. And so this, and that's kind of how things started to kind of fall away in a more structural sense. Right. The, the analogy I use is that, um, you know, think about you're driving a car on a twisty mountain road. Uh, there are two things that cause that car uh, to not you know, go over the cliff. The first is the guardrails that prevent the car from presumably doing that if someone were to be so stupid to to do that. And the second is the caliber of the driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we didn't realize is that over the last 50 years or so, erosion has caused all those guardrails to fall away. Um, and, you know, we've had a variety of, of presidents in terms of quality, but they all took the job seriously enough to never quite go over the guardrails or go, to go over the, the the pass. And we now have a president that th- thinks he's in a bumper car, um, <laughs> that thinks it's impossible for him to get hurt. Um, and furthermore, the, the disturbing thing with him is that he's not getting any better at the job. He's In fact, he's clearly getting worse, but he's getting more confident that he thinks he can do the job. Yeah. Uh, which is in some ways even more dangerous. Yeah, he, he the bumper car analogy is pretty good. And he thinks he's alone in the bumper yeah. car arena. 
Uh, right. There's no, nothing to constrain him. He maybe doesn't even realize he's in an arena. He's just, he's just going to try to drive that bumper car like right off the edge. Uh, take us all with him. So I want to take a quick break here and then, you know, we'll we'll get started. Obviously, there's, there's a lot to say, um, but we'll be right back. Here at With Friends Like These, we love Grove Collaborative. It's the online marketplace that delivers all-natural home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your door. All winter, I talked about my favorite Mrs. Myers scented products that um, I have been using to make my house smell, you know, like winter. There was a sort of apple cider scented one, and there was a clove scented one. And those are running out just as technically winter is running out. And now I'm going to Grove Collaborative to get this fresh spring scents like honeysuckle and geranium. But Grove Collaborative is about more than just like delicious smelling cleaners. It's also about making your home more sustainable and less filled with plastic. You probably want that, but do you know where to start? Grove can help. Grove has a sustainable swap set that is the best and easiest way to start reducing your family's use of plastic. There are silicone straws, reusable and washable sandwich bags, a refillable hand soap dispenser, gel hand soap, and a walnut scrubber sponge set. Make your home more sustainable this year. Now, for a limited time, when my listeners go to grove.co, that's grove.co, not com, grove.co slash friends, you will get a free five-piece set for that sustainable swap from Grove so you can swap out plastic the easy way. And you will get free shipping and a 60-day free VIP trial. Go to grove.co, that's grove.co, grove.co slash friends to get this exclusive sustainable swap offer. The only thing I would add is that in some ways this also goes to a, a you know a, a phrase that we heard a lot, particularly in 2017 and 2018, which was the idea of the adults in the room. Um, and, and this is one of the other ways in which the Trump administration has evolved over time. You know, when, when Trump first came in, there was a lot of talk about how people like John Kelly uh, or James Mattis or Rex Tillerson uh, or Gary Cohn functioned as the adults in the room, that, that the sort of the last gasp, uh, you know, constraint on Trump was that even his own advisors would not necessarily you know, let him do anything egregiously bad. And indeed, there there is a report which is in the book. Uh, I think it was an Associated Press story uh, that said that that James Mattis, when he was Secretary of Defense, and John Kelly, when he was Homeland Security Secretary, had a pact that one of them would stay in the country at all times. Um, so that if they, in other words, there would never be a time where both of them would be out of the country and Trump would be alone in the right. country, uh, which would allow him to potentially act in a more unchecked manner. Um, now there was a lot of, you know, I think derision about whether or not they really were acting as a constraint because Trump did, you know, the administration, it's not like it functioned smoothly in 2017, 2018. But I think it is safe to say that, that particularly over the last year plus, what Trump has done is essentially taken all of these adults in the room and kicked them out or bullied them to the point where they left on their own accord. And he's now replaced them with what I can only describe as, as sort of sycophants. Um, so people like, <laughs> you know, like— You can only describe them. There are other yes. words, but, you know. There are other words, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, let me rephrase. These are, these are people that I can only describe on family radio as right. sycophants. Okay. Right. Uh, We're not family but, radio. They're ass kissers. That's what they yes. are. That is what yes. they are. You wouldn't say that in front of a toddler, but that's exactly. I'm trying to use. I'm trying to use toddler-approved language, right. but yeah, uh, no, they're sycophants, they're toadies, they're ass kissers. In some cases, they're Faustians. Oh, that's you know what? Also, category. they're star fuckers. There, 
There, yes. there you go. I said it. Yeah. Star fuckers. That's no. So, so, I, so what I said, there are actually three categories remaining of, of Trump staffers. The first are uh, the total star fuckers, as you say, people like Dan Scavino, um, you know, who got their start as Trump's caddy. Uh, these are people who, uh, you know, only exist to because they exist in Trump's orbit. And so they're very happy to, to do whatever he wants, regardless of the relative competency. Um, the second group are Faustians. These are people that might actually have some degree of competency. Um, people like, you know, Mike Pompeo or Robert O'Brien or what have you. Um, but nonetheless, are are so slavishly devoted, recognize the only way they can continue to stay in office is to obey Trump's every whim. Um, and so they've made that deal with themselves and with the devil and what have you, and they're perfectly willing to do that. And then the final category are what I call the uh, the island of misfit wonks, uh, <laughs> which which are essentially people that ordinarily would never be able to serve in any administration because they have too much baggage. But because this administration has so desperate to get anyone to work for them that they are scraping the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. Um, so think the, the good example of this would be Monica Crowley, uh, who was supposed to come in as a spokesperson for the National Security Council in 2017. Uh, she was exposed as a serial plagiarist, uh, both in her uh, book that had come out a year previously, as well as her doctoral dissertation. Um, as a result, Crowley wound up, you know, withdrawing. But in 2019, she was uh, rather quietly hired back by the Treasury Department to be their spokesperson, uh, which demonstrates the degree oh, to which they are. Wait, she's the, she is there right now? Yeah, she's oh there right God. now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That was quiet. That was very quiet. Um, yeah. Isn't well, Azar kind of uh, an example of this as well? Like, I, I, I mean, I don't think he has a ton of baggage, but he's one of like they they had to find what I was like, listening to Fresh Air about this, uh, they had to find a pro-life uh, person to serve right. in that position. And that's apparently kind of hard to find a very um, well-credentialed uh, healthcare expert who's going to be just explicitly like yeah. pro-life. Well, I think what Azar exposes also is the sort of sycophant nature at this point mm-hmm. of anyone who serves in the administration. I mean, the degree to which, I mean, we've seen this in a lot of the coronavirus, you know, uh, uh, updates, you know, the degree to which Azar, there was a clip yesterday, I think of him on Fox News saying, you know, Trump took the bravest stance imaginable in, in imposing <laughs> travel ban on Europe. I, I think that's the most dramatic thing I've ever seen happen. And I was like, well, the stock market reaction to it was definitely the most dramatic thing I've seen happen. <laughs> but, but, you know, no, that's like, what, whatever you think of the actual wisdom of doing that, it is a drop in the bucket uh, at this point in terms of, of stopping the outbreak. So, you know, the problem is, is that you almost have to discount Whenever like anyone is asked to serve, they literally like start with a minute of praise for Trump in ways that I don't recall seeing in the Obama administration or the Bush administration or the Clinton administration for that matter. It's not like these. It's not like his those president subordinates don't occasionally praise their president. But what you don't see, which this White House does all the time, is issue things like press releases containing paragraphs of praise from his own cabinet officials. (laughs) They did that this week about his uh, address to the nation from the Oval Office. Uh, So people who have not worked on campaigns or don't know, know, haven't seen lots of press releases, but it is standard after a politician gives a big address uh, that the campaign or or press office or whatever will put together a collection of clips, usually from pundits and straight news articles. Right. The in case you missed it press release this week. <laughs> 
they they did it in case you missed a press release containing praise for Trump. But the only things in it, the only there weren't even any Fox News people quoted. The only things in it were from people in the administration or related to the administration. I mean, right. And, <sighs> and the reason no prior administration would do this is because they don't assume that people are idiots. Of course, the cabinet secretaries are going <laughs> to praise the president. You know, it, it's a useless press release. And yet, clearly, this happens all the time, in part to assuage Trump's ego and to try to sort of create, you know, in theory, this alternative universe. You know, so we've uh, yet another smooth transition for you and me, Dan. Uh, <laughs> we've been the, the coronavirus uh, epidemic pandemic has come up Constantly, as we've discussed, Trump, as is appropriate, it is the biggest thing happening in the world today. Hopefully, mm, that's not going to be true for for very much longer, but it is. And what what people may not know, because I forgot to say it in the introduction, is that not only are you and I friends because we share an interest in politics, but we also share an interest in science fiction. Like we're both mm-hmm. science fiction nerds. In fact, you were my co-host on a Expanse recap podcast called The Churn, which I encourage everyone who shares these traits to to go and uh, find and also watch season four if you haven't watched season four. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we who have read a lot of post-apocalyptic novels <laughs> um, are particularly suited to discuss what's happening now. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of wanted to to see if you've been thinking about that that same genre because i so i recently read chuck windig's the wanderers uh which is about a respiratory (laughs) illness uh that strikes a a huge portion of the population uh and then actually my dad called me to tell me he had just finished listening to the stand which i was like are you fucking crazy oh uh what were you doing um, but he he enjoyed it. He didn't like the ending. Um, it's, King doesn't always stick the landing, I feel like. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, there's like untold non-illness-related post-apocalyptic novels. But have you put, been put in mind? Has that, I, I, has that occurred to you? Well, again, you're talking to the author of Theories of International Politics and Zombies. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, this is another uh, another book of mine, which is is supposed to function as a sort of small uh, textbook on international relations asking what would different theories predict if if the dead started rising from the grave and feasting upon the living. And the only actual original research I needed to do for that book, beyond watching a ton of zombie movies, was researching the international relations and domestic politics of catastrophes, basically. You know, natural disasters, disease epidemics, and so on and so forth. And so it was funny, writing that book, I actually came away more optimistic than the zombie genre. Um, so, which, which isn't hard, I grant you that, but like in the zombie genre, you know, and and indeed most of these sort of catastrophe, uh, movies, that's the other thing. I'm old enough to remember like all those catastrophe movies, like in the seventies, you know, like, like, uh, the all-star ones, like the towering inferno. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's some virus one that I remember, uh, where Andromeda strain. Oh, the Andromeda strain is good. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but there's a, there was another one I was remembering where like Robert Vaughn is president and like, it's a bad movie. Um, but like it's stuck in my head cause I watched it when I was eight or something. Um, but anyway, all those movies always sort of show, you know, the end of the world happening. It's going to be bad, bad, bad. And I always thought that the thing that, that those, that those, uh, narratives always miss is the ability of human beings to adapt and overcome. Now, this is a hard thing to deal with when you're talking about the federal government, because 
their response to this, let's face it, has been nothing short of, of uh, abysmal um, in terms of the lack, you know, in the United States of, of testing, the lack of reliable information in terms of how the, far the, the infection has spread. On the other hand, I am slightly cheered by the fact that even in the wake of the federal government's inaction, you've seen the rest of American society sort of shift rather dramatically into preparations to try to mitigate the spread of the virus, to flatten the curve, as, as everyone has been talking about this week. So the fact that you've seen states and localities, um, you know, declaring states of emergency and uh, taking actions to, to try to, you know, prevent the assembly of people as a way of spreading the virus any further. Uh, the fact that, you know, college basketball had to cancel March Madness, which does break my heart and I know breaks your heart. Um, I know, I know. But nonetheless, might have been the right thing to do. yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Broadway closing and and so on and so forth. And in some ways, this is where these kinds of things, it might seem odd to some people because let's face it, as we speak right now, I believe fewer than 2,000 people have been diagnosed as having the coronavirus in the United States. And not, you know, I think fewer than uh, 100 people have been diagnosed as dying from it. So this all might seem like overkill, but it's not because since we have no immunity to this disease, it will spread. We're, a lot of us are likely to get it. We're likely to also survive it and be fine by it. But you want to slow the spread so that uh, our healthcare infrastructure is not overloaded. And it, it's funny to me, I, you know, as appalling as the president's response has been, I'm somewhat cheered by the fact that Tom Hanks got it. Um, <laughs> I, and um, I don't mean I don't I don't mean any ill will against Tom Hanks. It's that Tom Hanks is someone that ever, you know, he's this America's. This is a terrible, terrible analogy. So I'm just going to yeah. credit it to the person I actually heard it from, which is Glenn Beck, of all people. <laughs> oh, I, I listen to his radio show, Don't Ask. I have a whole riff about why. Uh, it has to do with him being a fellow alcoholic in recovery. Um, but he said, <laughs> he said that Tom Hanks is the coronavirus Rock Hudson. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. Oh, that's awful on so many levels. <laughs> but he's not necessarily wrong either. I know, oh, I know, I know, I know. So we oh, have to wow. credit it to, to the t- person who okay. thought of it. Yeah, but that's fair enough. Yeah, he has a point. <laughs> he's, no, he's not completely wrong about that. That's that's that you know, and uh, yeah, you know, and and they will be fine. By the way, you know, yes, they're, they're, unlike they're, unlike Rock Hudson, that's the right exactly. Problem. That's, <laughs> If there's one piece of advice I could, you know, talk more generally about with this disease, I understand, like, you know, the fact that our our daily ways of life are clearly changing. Most of us are working from home now. Are you know, my I I don't know about you, where you are. My school system is shut down as well, so my kids are going to be home. Uh, My my the university where I teach and the university where my son goes is uh, been shut down, Um, and. Again, the odds are quite good that my entire family will get this virus at some point. The odds are also extremely good that all of us will be fine at the end of it. It's going to be like a, uh, you know, in that sense, um, uh, like the flu. But what we don't want is for everyone to get it at the same time. Yeah, I think people, if I can just interrupt, because I, I, this is something that I've been talking about with my father, who's a statistician, um, that what people aren't really seeing also are the deaths that might not happen because of coronavirus. But that might happen because the hospital system is so stressed. He's an actuary, also. That's so. This is his. This is his shit. You know, (laughs) (laughs) he's retired, but he's apparently been really closely following this on his, you know, like math list serves and stuff. So we've talked about that. Like, if the hospital system gets as strained as it is, or as it is in, say, Italy, because this is happening in Italy, you could have some other issue besides coronavirus but you won't be able to get treatment. 
So that's a whole like that's a whole nother level of disaster that I feel like people I want to remind people like that's another thing that we're trying to prevent by doing these precautionary right. measures. I think it was a month ago, actually, that uh, Zainab Tufekci wrote a great piece in Scientific American pointing out that essentially we have to think about the way we're behaving right now as, you know, particularly if you're healthy, you are acting that, you know, you are changing your behavior as an act of charity, as an act of goodwill, um, because it is the it is the most pro-social thing you can do is to not get sick and not spread the disease so that those who are more vulnerable are are more likely to survive. Um, and so in that sense, you know, and so that's the way in which I'm somewhat more optimistic, perhaps, than, you know, just looking at the stock market or looking at the White House, that actually you're seeing Americans by and large react in a non-panicky way, but in a serious way about this. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, that you know, American society will be able to do what uh, our government has until now been not so good at doing. Uh, Rekha Solnit, who was just on the show, she has a, a book about communities created in catastrophe that is hopeful. She, that's her brand. She's hopeful. Uh, she's very dark analysis than hopeful. Uh, and I think that's true. And it's a cliche at this point to point to 9-11, but let's point to 9-11. I mean, there was some hatred that emerged, some things that that we would want to take back as a country. But for the most part— you know, we pulled together in a way that in my lifetime, I've never seen. I right. think this is a slow motion version of that. So I, I would I would close with two points. The first is I, I wrote this sentence in the book, and it is terrifying to realize that I wrote it. Um, but I, I do say in the conclusion, based on Trump's behavior as cataloged in this book, the idea of Trump coping with a true crisis, a terrorist attack, a global pandemic, a great power clash with China is truly frightening. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's been borne out by this. Um, but but that said, you know, hopefully what this winds up being is a teachable moment in terms of even those people who are suspicious of the federal government or suspicious of the state writ large, recognizing that there's a reason why we call it public health and not just health, that there are certain vital public goods we need the state to be able to provide, that even if you believe in a de minimis state, that there are certain things we need, you know, governments to do, and that we might want to occasionally appreciate um, during times of crisis the role that experts that are trained in the things that we want them to be trained in to actually be able to help out and give pertinent advice. Yeah, there are bright sides to all this. I actually I hate the term bright side and I hate the term silver yeah. lining. Um, I, sometimes what I say about uh, tragedies or uh, challenges that we go through is that there are unexpected gifts. Uh, yeah, that we oh, get. I like that better. That's, uh, a, that's a nice phrase. I like that. Thank you. And I, I, I believe that is something that is in the process of unfolding right now um, is unexpected gifts. And I, I would add, by the way, is that uh, for me, what, let's each share an unexpected gift maybe that we already have have received because of what's happening. And mine is that I've called my dad almost every day, which hmm. to be honest, I love him. People who listen to the show on a regular basis know how much I talk about him and like he, I, mean, I admire him and he's a wonderful person. Uh, he's also 70 something and has asthma. And, you know, like, I'm not like actively worried about him because he's also an actuary <laughs> and he's taken all the steps he needs to take, right? He's but we've we've connected in a way that we haven't before, and I'm a little sad that it's taken this to do it. But I am not mm-hmm. sad at all that I am 
being able to deepen my relationship with one of the people I love most in the world. Um, that is nice. And I've, I've talked to my parents more than, than I had previously, among other things, because I may wanted to make sure they did not get on a plane. Um, <laughs> Because they are high risk. But uh, I think in my case, it's my neighborhood. It's my street. Um, you know, we uh, I, I like the place that I live. Obviously, we have wonderful neighbors. But there's one woman in particular that is, a, you know, she's 80. She's retired. Uh, she has a dog that gets along extremely well with mine, um, which says something because my dog is part chihuahua, which means she hates every other dog. <laughs> um, but she likes this dog. And uh, this woman is delightful. And it occurs to me now that, you know, or it's occurred to us that, like, she's probably in a high risk category. And so we're going to try to reach out to her to see if she needs someone to go grocery shopping for to, you know, just do little things that, that you know, I, I, I can imagine if you're over 70, this is a very fearful time because the virus will is more serious if, you, if you're over that age and if you have a comorbid uh um, condition. And so it, this is going to make me want to do, you know, it's made me want to do things like, you know, donate more to local food banks and to reach out to the older people that I know to make sure that they are okay. And what I hope happens is that people will realize that these gifts that we are getting from this difficult time, like, have no expiration date. Yes. Um, you can keep getting that gift long after the crisis has passed. So I hope you get some more gifts, Dan. You too, Anna. And that is it for the show. I was going to do a big closing talking about how important self-care is, but I, I think that I think that we have. Um, the most important kind of self-care you can do right now is to, even if you're isolating, not be alone. Yes. Stay in contact with the world. And, and Dan and I will keep texting. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show, Dan. Thanks a lot, Anna. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine.